All right, we are picking up, uh, continuing in 1 John. We're going to finish out the third chapter, and we're going to pick up the first six verses of the fourth chapter. So um, before we get started, let me say a quick prayer for us, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we thank you for this time. I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word and your chance, uh, this chance to study it, to correctly divide it, Lord. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you use my sermon to deliver the message that you would have heard. God, I rest on your promise that your word will not return void. So Lord, as we look into uh, John, help us to be assured by it. Help us to be convicted by it. Help us, Lord, as we try to look into the, the, kind of comf- the complicated and, and in some ways mysterious world of the spiritual that we can find wisdom and truth in these words, in your word. So Lord, help us as we tackle these things. Give us understanding And God, we are so thankful for the presence of your Spirit here among us. And it's that Spirit in which we lean on for our understanding. It is the promised down payment of our salvation. We thank you for it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. so uh, just as a reminder for folks, we are in 1 John. And 1 John was written by by a pastor, by an elder, John, and he is writing to a church. And it really kind of reads more like a poetic sermon than it does a typical letter. Uh, We'll see in 2 John and 3 John that writings that look more similar to kind of letters written to people. This is really more of a poetic sermon that's being sent to the church to at least one church, maybe multiple churches. So, and, and these churches are facing some sort of conflict. They've had some sort of false teaching, false uh, teachers forwarding and, and pursuing false doctrine. So that's the context that, these, that this letter is finding uh, this church that it's being sent to. And all throughout the, the stuff we've studied so far, there have been two kind of driving themes, love and light. So this, this, the, the nature of the letter is to reassure the people that John is writing to. He's basically saying, you are okay. You, you, you are, this, if, you, if this is what you believe, if this is what you hold to, you're good. You don't have to have any of the extra special stuff. It appears as if the, the false teaching was something we would call the Gnostic teaching. So that there's this extra special stuff that you've got to know the extra special secret stuff to really be a Christian. So John is writing to these people saying, no, no, no. If you, if you hold on to what you had in the beginning, to the, the simple gospel that, I, that it was taught to you, you are a believer. That's all you need. So that's, that's the context that we uh, find this, um, 
find ourselves in in this scripture. So uh, I'm going to be reading, uh, instead of reading all at one time and kind of coming back to it, I'm just going to go uh, for the interest of time. I'm just going to read and, and interrupt with uh, commentary. So hopefully I make it clear where the scripture is and where we are in the scripture. So I'm going to try to do that. So this is 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So here we see John is using this, this story and, and the, the, we believe that the people he's writing to are, are a Jewish church. So they would have been uh, completely knowledgeable of this story. So he doesn't have to elaborate. He doesn't have to explain what he's talking about because he, he knows the people he's writing to know this story well. And this is the story we find in Genesis. Cain, uh, you have the two brothers, sons of Adam and Eve. And Cain is evil. His behavior is evil. And Abel is obedient. And this all has to do with the way they worship God. Abel worships in the way God has instructed. He brings a sacrifice and he brings the fat of, the, of his sacrifice, the fatty parts, and he offers them to God as a sacrifice. So we have this clear example of someone who's doing, he's following what God has laid out to worship. So he's, he's worshiping the God the way God wants him to. But then we have Cain who does the opposite. Cain is a farmer. And instead of taking his fruits and vegetables, and, and trading them with his brother or asking, you know, buying stuff from his brothers to, so that he can make a sacrifice in the way that God has asked him to. He says, well, I'll, I'll offer my stuff as, an, as a sacrifice, and this is what I'll do. And he neglects to do it the way that God instructed to do it. So God rejects his sacrifice and says, no, you need to do it this way. And he gets mad. He gets mad at his brother, and he murders his brother. He draws him out in the field, premeditated, draws him out in the field and murders him. So this is the, that's the story that John is calling on here, and he's saying, hey, look, you, know, you need to love one another, and he's contrasting love, you know, love each other, don't be like Cain. Now this seems like a... a an exaggeration, right? Like, like an argument to the absurd, right? Wait a minute. We went from love one another to murder. Like that's the options. But we see Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that if you don't, that, that to hate your brother is to murder him. It's the same thing. So we see this love, don't hate, love. So that's, that's the story, that, that's, that's the message John is presenting here. He continues in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So now he is, he's taking that story of Cain and Abel, and he's using it as instruction, so love each other, don't hate each other. But he's also using that story to show that, look, the world's going to hate you. 
So don't be surprised. And they're going to hate you because you are trying to obey God. Does that make sense? So we shouldn't be surprised when we try to obey God, the world then hates us. From the very beginning, we see this. And, and, and John is laying out here, don't be surprised. This is a pattern that you're going to see. So there's a, a normal, and this may just be for me, this may not be a normal thing for other people, but there's a normal response to this, which is to think, well, look how much better I am than the world. I'm being obedient. I'm doing what I should do. And the world hates me for it, and I'm going to take pride in that. What, what a good job am I doing? Yes. But before you get too far down that road, I would, quest, I would caution you to not be prideful because you did not earn your salvation. You are not a Christian because you are better than the non-believers. Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 10 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You cannot boast about your salvation. The only boast we can make is Christ crucified. So be, be careful with that, especially those of you or those of us who struggle with pride and being... Uh, and not having mercy on other people. All right, so verse 14 back in 1 John. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So here we see in these, these past uh, handful of verses, we see this re- repeating of the, of the theme of love, or hate, life or death, right? Light or darkness. We, we see this following through all of 1 John. So here, we're, we're, again, this is made very clear to us. The decision is love or hate. That's it. That's, that's the decision. Love or death, life or death, love or hate. So verse 15 Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So so this is a, a very succinct example, of, again, of, of having these two kind of opposites being presented. We see self, selfish taking of life, a murderer, and it's, it's juxtaposed or compared against the selflessness of giving up your life for your brother. And that's the example, right? The world's way is selfish murder, right? It's, it's caring about what you want and, 
and, and getting what you want at any cost. But God's way is the, the selflessness of sacrifice, of giving up even your life for your brothers. And the example we have for that is Christ. Right? He gave up his life, which was worth way more than any of our lives, for us. That's, that's the example that we have. So verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So now we're getting, we've been pretty heavy, pretty heady, right? We're talking about light and darkness and love and hate and murder and sacrifice. We're real heady, big pictures, right? Big principles. Easy for us to all agree about that, right? That's easy. Now the rubber's meeting the road. John's saying, hey, look, I'm talking about these big principles and they should affect the way we live our lives, So, he's saying, Christians, church, if anyone has the world's goods, so if you have plenty here, if you have extra here, and you see a brother in need, and you close your heart to him, and you don't help him, how can you you abide in God's love? So, So this is really practical. We went from the really philosophical to the really practical in like one verse. So this is practical love. And this is countercultural. It was countercultural then, and it's countercultural now. We are called to love each other in practical ways. We are literally in this together. We should help each other out in, and help each other meet each other's practical needs. And there's a wonderful example of this, and Rusty's going to be mad at me for using him as an example. But Rusty helps out lots of people, helps me out a lot. Right now, my truck is at his house, and he has put hours into helping me fix it. And, and he has a practical nature of helping people in a practical way. And that shows his love to me and to the church by practically helping. This is what we're called to do. Verse 18. And again, he's not just speaking to children here when he says little children. He's speaking to the church and particularly the new believers in the church. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and assure our heart before Him. So this is, this is right along the theme of this assuredness. This is a way that God... that, that John is assuring his audience to say, look, don't believe... When these people are over here saying you got to do extra stuff, don't believe them. If you love... Right there. 
let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So if you, are tr- if you truly love each other, then, then you know, you can take that as assurance that God is abiding in you. You don't have to have anything extra secret stuff, okay? So here's, here's a convicting question, right? Are you living your faith? Is your love being lived out in your everyday life? Do people notice it? Do people notice your love? Verse 20. For, when, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Behold, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So this is, again, this is the audience here are believers. He's writing to believers. And he's saying, hey, whenever your heart condemns you, whenever you have that, I'm not enough, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing enough. And, it, and by the way, note, this is right after he's saying, be practical, live practical, show your love in a practical way. But whenever your heart condemns you, whenever you feel like, oh, I can't do enough, I'm not, I'm, I'm not loving enough, I'm not doing enough, I'm not good enough, know that God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. So, so don't, don't, don't beat yourself up, right? Don't beat yourself up. And then the, the second verse there, verse 21, behold, if your heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So, so this is just a reassurance to his audience that this is okay. You, you, don't beat yourself up here, right? So we're called to love each other in practical ways and to help each other. But don't beat yourself up if you feel like, oh, I'm just not doing enough, right? God, God's, God's in control of this. You know, the, the Holy Spirit tugs on our hearts, and that's called our conscience, so we should listen to our conscience, but we also shouldn't let it condemn us. We don't have to be condemned anymore. We are free of condemnation because of Jesus' sacrifice. So, verse 22. And whenever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. So, he, you know, here we go. We're back to this assurance, right? This simple gospel. He's reminding them, look, the, the, hang your hat on the truth that you learned in the beginning. This simple gospel. Believe in the name of Jesus, the Son of God, and that He is Christ, and love one another. That's it. That's it. it I, I, I'm going to talk a little bit later about the importance of doctrinal uh, study and, and having good doctrine and, and, and defending against false teachers and false spirits. But everything starts here. This is the start of all of that. Believing in the name of Jesus, the Son of God, that He is Christ, that He is your personal Savior, 
and loving one another. That's where all of this starts, right? That's the simple gospel. And we can return to that as assurance. Even when we don't understand concepts, you know, when I'm, when I'm reading something and when I'm reading the Bible and I don't understand, this is hard and I'm trying to learn, I'm trying to figure out how does this work with the doctrine of grace or the, the God's sovereignty. You know, this is hard stuff to get around. We can remind ourselves and be assured by the simple gospel that we have come to know and love. So we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and believe in the name of Jesus Christ as our Savior. Verse 24, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. So the Spirit is the thing. That's, that's, again, this assurance. By this we know He abides in us. The Spirit is the, the down payment of our resurrection. But the Spirit is also not a passive uh, observer. It's, the Spirit's not just along for the ride in us. The Spirit is what gives us strength to keep God's commandments. It's a convictor of our lives. It's a strengthener. It helps us understand. It even intercedes for us in prayer. So what he was saying is, you have God's Spirit in you. Be assured. So now, right, up to here, this, up to this point in the sermon and in the Scripture, this is a... a a sermon that you would be, you could hear preached in church after church after church this morning, across the country, maybe across the world. So now we're gonna. This, this is one of the things about preaching expositionally is sometimes you come to scripture that's hard to teach. Most of the time, if if people were choosing kind of topical preaching, you don't land on First John four very often. Because 1 John 4, the first six, six verses here, are going to talk about spirits and testing the spirits. And these are, are you know, quite honestly, this is one of the reasons we preach expositionally. Because I would never choose, hey, I'm going to pick this verse, we're, we're going to preach on this chapter. I wouldn't do that. And I don't trust myself to have the courage to do that. So... That's why we do it. That's why we preach through the Bible the way we do. So I'm going to start reading 1 John 4, verses 1 and 2. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is from God. So the first response to this often from people is, at least for me when I read it, was, okay, there's other spirits. Right? There's other spirits. And that those other spirits may or may not be from God. 
that, there's, that there are spirits that aren't from God. So Ephesians 2.6 tells us, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So the spiritual is real. Spiritual warfare is real. The struggle we have, we are told by Scripture, is a spiritual struggle. Now, a lot of, uh, a lot of Christians struggle with this. And they struggle with it in one of two ways. They either think this is weird and kind of scary and I'm going to stay away from this. And those people tend to be what's called materialists. Those are people who think that there's a material explanation for everything in our lives and uh, kind of think about it like a science, like science-driven thing. And they're materialists. And they would say that this whole spiritual thing, there's nothing to that. Maybe there was a long time ago, but there's not now. Everything now is all material. Okay? So that's one way too far off the trail you can go, right? But you can go off the other side of the road into the ditch, which is to focus so much on the spiritual and to dive into it and try to manipulate it and try to control it and try to do, you know, do that kind of stuff that you actually get into pagan stuff. And we see that. We see both of these in the, in the American, even the global church. We see both of these errors, too far both ways. So the materialists dismiss the supernatural as no longer being parts of our lives and that it's not consistent, and that's clearly not consistent with a plain reading of Scripture. Right? I mean, we, we just read about how our struggle is with things that are outside of this world. So the materialist, too far. But then, so we, we have to acknowledge there is a spiritual aspect to our lives. And that not, all, not everything that's spiritual is of God, right? Some of it's from Satan or from fallen angels. But you can go too far and you can start incorporating the pagan or the occult practices into the church. And that we see this. It's been creeping into our churches. This anything that's kind of communing with spirits, you know, anything like that, that very, very dark, very dangerous. Um, even focusing on darkness and focusing on uh, demonic, you know, inviting um, prophetic words, adding you know, allowing spirits to speak and then interpreting those as being from God. Very dangerous. Now, um, there's a, another topic here that, that falls in line with all of this and it's demon possession. And these are all hard things, hard things to, to study, hard things to think about. 
But Jesus told us when he was speaking about demon possession in John chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that, there may, that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So by the way, that, that was not when he was talking about demonic matters. That's the next passage. So sorry, my, I got my notes mixed up there. So but that's what Jesus, Jesus is telling us that the thief, right, Satan, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus comes so that we may have life and have it abundantly. So again, we see this juxtaposition between the good and the evil. So I do want to make a note about demon possession and, and demon oppression, and that those are two different things. Now, when Jesus is talking about demon uh, demonic matters in Matthew 12, verse 29, he says, Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house? Now you may think, wait a minute, Cody, I thought you said that was talking about demonic possession. But it's talking about a thief and stealing something from a house. Well, the Holy Spirit lives in us. Remember, the Holy Spirit abides in us. So I am a house. The Holy Spirit is in me. And there is no one stronger than the Holy Spirit. There is no stronger man than the Holy Spirit. So in order for me to be possessed, the, whole, the demonic would have to bind the Holy Spirit. And that's not going to happen. Remember, the Satan, the fallen angels, they do not operate independently from permission from God. So that's what the, the whole book of Job tells us and makes very clear. That God is in control. He is ultimately in control of everything. And God restrains Satan constantly. So, um, so what do we do with these spirits, right? We've, we're here, right? We've got these, this idea of the spirits. So we are to test the spirits. Now, I, when I say spirits, right, I want to try to clarify a little bit. Do I mean, oh, I'm, you know, feel like I'm being led for something? Yes, that could be a spirit, right? But it's also anything that is being brought forward, right? So... We, we, we spoke last week and we're about to speak about the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist. So this is the, the general concept that the spirit is anything that's distracting us, right? It's, it's any teaching, any, anybody, false teachers have a spirit and they're using that spirit's using them to teach and to lead away and distract from the church. So how do we test? How do we test this? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21 and 22 tells us, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. So we are told we've got to be discerning. And that's what discerning means, is, is figuring out what is good and what is bad so that we can hold on to the good 
and we can dismiss the bad, okay? All right, so what test do we use? Well, verse 3 tells us. So back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So, so again, remember what this church is dealing with. This church is dealing with this false teaching from false prophets who are leading the church away from the truth. And so those false teachers were not teaching that Jesus was from God, that Jesus came to earth. So this spirit of the Antichrist is any spirit of a false teacher that doesn't teach the truth about Jesus. And, and look, this shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't have surprised them. Jesus warned us, warned them, Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus also said in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 11, And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. When they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Wow, that's a downer, right? But this, it's important to remember that true Christians cannot be led astray. 1 John 2, verse 19, we studied this a few weeks ago. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. You know, we, we're even told this in Matthew 24, 20, verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But it's not. That's what he's saying here. It's not, it's not possible to lead the, the elect, but if it weren't for God's protection, even the elect would be misled by these false prophets, by these antichrists. We even see a charge to elders specifically about protecting the flock. 
in Acts 20, verses 28 and 30. Pay attention, pay careful attention to yourselves. So this is instruction to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He or, uh, obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw attention, to, to draw away the disciples after them. So here we see the we see Luke in, in Acts saying, hey, this is going to happen, right? Even among the elders, you're going to see false prophets and wolves come out that are going to devour the flock. We see this today. It shouldn't surprise us when we see a pastor of a church and then it comes, some story comes out and it turns out he was, he was never a believer and that he was leading people astray. We had a conversation yesterday about uh, this and, and it happening in the music industry, the Christian music industry. How many times have we seen this story over and over about a, a, a Christian music performer coming out and saying, I'm walking away from the faith. I'm out. I'm not this. I don't believe this anymore. Well, so one of two things is happening. Either that's a true believer who has stumbled and if that's the case, God will call them back. Or they were never a believer and they have been misleading and, and been used to mislead and hurt Christians and believers, the church. So, so that's why elders are charged to have that responsibility to take those steps to try to protect their flock. So... So let's get back to that test, right? We were talking about the test in 1 John chapter 4. So it's to be discerning, right? To determine right from wrong. And it's pretty easy. We're given these two things leading up to this. Love one another and know who Christ is. Know who Jesus is. And that's the test, right? That's actually it. That's it. Who is Jesus? Uh, pastors would say, what is your doctrine of Christ, right? But the reality is all that means is who do you think Jesus is? Who does the Bible tell you Jesus is? And do you believe that? So Christians disagree on many things, right? In this room, there are faithful, honest, authentic Christians who disagree about lots of things. To disagree on who Christ is, who Jesus is, that is fundamental. That, that is what makes us Christians, is by what we believe. That's why we say the creed, is to make it clear, this is what we believe. So who is Jesus and what has he done that is, the, that is a first-order thing that we have to agree on if we are going to be Christians. 
So who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. He is God, and He's the Son of God. This is hard, right? This is the, the Trinity. Understanding this is, you know, I, I had someone come to me one time and say, I need, you, I need you to explain the Trinity to me. I'm struggling with it. And I said, yes, me too. Because these are hard things to understand, which is why we, we have the Bible and we believe what the Bible says. So we have God the Father, God the Son, and the God Holy Spirit. And the simple gospel is that God the Father sent the Son to die on the cross for us because we are sinners and our sin must be punished. A just God must punish sin. So our sin has to be punished. So Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and then was punished for my sin and your sin. And his sacrifice was so good, so pure, so powerful, that, that his sacrifice becoming sin on the cross was enough to satisfy my debt, the debt that my sin had accumulated. And then, as if that's not enough, God then says, okay, I'm going to take the, I took the sin you deserved and put it onto Jesus. Well, I'm going to take the righteousness that he deserved and I'm going to put that on you. So now you, he got punished for your sin, you get rewarded for his righteousness. That's the gospel. It has nothing to do, you notice that whole thing I just said there, I didn't do anything. I wasn't the hero. It's not because I was smart enough or good enough or brave enough or anything like that, strong enough. I didn't do anything to deserve my salvation. My salvation is based on the work Jesus did, not anything I do. So, The res a natural response to this is, wait a minute, so if I just believe that about Jesus, I'm a Christian? Yes, that's it. It seems simple. That's what John's point is. He's writing to a people who all these external things are being introduced and these secret, you've got to have the secret knowledge. And John's saying, no, 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 go back to the beginning. Go back to the gospel, the simple gospel. That is it. That is it for salvation. And then he continues the conversation because there's salvation and then there's sanctification. Salvation is the thing that buys us, you know, covers our sin, pays for our sin, and gets us eternal life in heaven. Sanctification is the process that then God does after that to make us more and more like Christ. So we see this process. And this process, this sanctification, this is where it comes in to understanding theological matters. This is why in 1 Timothy 4.16, we are told, 
keep a close watch on yourselves and on the teaching, right? So we've got to watch our behavior, and this is particularly directed to, to elders and people teaching. You, you've got to keep a watch on your behavior. Are you living the way you should? And on what you're teaching. Are you teaching sound doctrine? Our theology matters. So then the, the last four or the, the last three verses in 1 John 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, the, the evil spirits. For you, uh, excuse me, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So this again is this encouragement and a realization. So the encouragement is that the spirit that's in us right, is stronger than the spirit of this world. God is the victor. It's, it's not close. I grew up kind of imagining, some of you have heard me say this before, I grew up imagining that God and Satan are in this battle and it could go either way. It's so close. And God is going to edge out, just edge out of victory just a little bit, right? That is not how it is. God is on the throne. And Satan is down here asking for authority to try to, to, try to, to get one over. I'm, I'm, he's trying to manipulate God, but it's not. It's, it's, it's futile. And if Satan was honest with himself, he would acknowledge that, but he isn't. He's a liar, even to himself. So... So we see that we, the spirit that's in us, is far more powerful than the spirit in this world. And, and John is also telling the church there and us not to be surprised again when the world doesn't understand. When the world doesn't understand what we say. And they're not going to listen to us. This is why we are to present the gospel and pray for those who reject it. Because we can't convince people to be Christians. That's not how it works. We pray that God call them. We share the gospel because God tells us to. But we're not there to try to convince people. James 3, 13 through 18 says, speaking about this wisdom, Who is wise and understanding among you? By this good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy—if uh, uh, you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but the earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. There will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, 
then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we're, we're shown again this contradiction between the earthly wisdom and the heavenly, the good and the evil. We're also warned not to get close to the world. There is light and there is dark, and they cannot mix. Ephesians 5, 7 through 12. Therefore, do not become partners with them, with the worldly. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. So be careful. The devil and his demons use any means possible to steal, kill, and destroy. And although Satan can't take the soul of an elect or a true believer, he can distract you and mislead you and cause you great pain or worse, he can use you to cause great pain to those you love. So be careful where you put your attention. This is uh, wonderful timing, which shouldn't surprise me for this sermon, because we're entering into October, right? And October, we celebrate, or America's society, culture celebrates Halloween. And there tends to be this big focus during the month of looking to the dark, seeking out darkness and the profane and the horrible. So I want to leave you on, on a note that is uh, apt, but, but not just for October and not just for those things, because I am convicted by this passage, because I can tend to focus on the negative, on the, the frightening, on the, the bad that's going to happen. But Philippians 4.8 tells us, Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, what is, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worth, worthy of praise, think about these things. God is telling us where to put our attention and that we should put our attention on the good things. We should focus on those things so that we don't get drugged down into the darkness and get distracted from the wonderful things that God has done for us. So Jesus left us with several things that we can use to direct our attention to the proper place. God's Word, hymns, psalms, all of these things. But one of these things He left us is the Lord's Supper. 